Okay, let's let's uh, about time to get started. Let's let's pray. And we begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Savior, you have purchased us with your blood that we might live in your kingdom and be heirs of life eternal. You have seized us that we may ever more perfectly lay hold of the newness of life where we are to serve you. Again, we've been given a day into which to peruse the prize of this high quality. Where we have faltered on the road or grown weary in the search, Lord, forgive us for the sake of your infinite compassion. You know the weaknesses of our hearts, O Christ, and will not reject our pleas for mercy. Give us, according to your good pleasure, rest tonight from the rigors of our toils this day, and renew us also from the weariness of sin. Let your word nourish us tonight. Let the water of life refresh our parched souls, and let us become more joyful, more complete in the quest for holiness. Grant that our prayers come before you with more persistence and greater faith. Make us ever mindful that our whole life is hidden in you with God. We trust in you because you will never forsake us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So this is working. Wonderful. Let's let's jump right in. I tell you, there is. A, I think I don't. Some of you. I'm I'm finally coming to terms with the fact that I'm older than I thought I was, and and so I guess I can kind of commiserate. I, I remember a different kind of Christianity with a strong midweek culture, and it's disappearing. And so I, I commend you and I thank you for being here in the midweek. It just shows that that commitment. And also as an Anglican, I'm. I'm, I'm going to slip off uh, right before prayer because I'm, I'm supposed to be at a vestry meeting right now. But this is my good excuse to, to rumble with the Lutherans. And there's a comparable grit to the Lutheran prayers that just nourishes my soul. One of the reasons that I am Anglican is that the Luther gets in. The Luther gets in. Not as much as with you, but it's there. <laughs> and so with that said, um, I'm delighted to be back and to share this with you. I hope you've been contemplating the Virgin Mary. I'm sure you all went and bought rosary beads and you've just been <laughs> clicking away. So we had that interesting question about whether or not you can pray the rosary. And again, um, looking around, there are Lutheran forms of it. But if you understand the Hail Mary, not as worship Mary, of course, but it's simply what it means in the original Greek, was this, it's a formal greeting. Even today in Greece, hedete, you say to someone, it just means a, a formal hello, like greetings. And that's what you're saying. You're, you're looking to this mystery of the church that you and I are a part of. And, and if I heard that announcement correctly, um, a, a, a brother has been ill and died. Yeah. And... and, and we're gonna, that's, uh, we will, this is how close it is for us. And so we have a brother in this congregation who is there with the Lord closer than we are now. And that is an, he is an ally. And so we, as we mourn and think about that, of course I did not know him, um, but, but some of the images you're about to see from Luther's congregation are, are close to, to what, uh, what we're experiencing. So I'm delighted to hear that the grit of that prayer. Um, part two of Mary for... Midwestern Lutheran men. Hard to recycle this one somewhere else. Kind of, kind of site-specific here. Okay, so remember where we are. We, uh, lifelong devotion to Mary with Luther. And 
This is not a distraction from Jesus, but an exemplar of the law gospel tradition. That's how we're thinking about the virgin. And I'm going to try to give some purchase on that today. And then finally, in the third session, we'll, we'll see how that might enhance how we think about um, this particular region of the country that God has placed us in. Can you think of it that way? We are stewards of the gospel's proclamation here. God has placed us here. And so we need to be thinking richly, regionally um, about what it means. And I think Mary, as your windows already proclaim, are a part of that. So I'll be, I, my, my favorite part last time was the Q&A, so um, that can, you can interrupt as we go. Just a reminder, um, remember, you did really well in this test, okay? So we've got, um, Luther has a rather high Mariology, and one of the claims we're making is that he, I think, is to be preferred to a trajectory that happens with Lutherans that we'll discuss why that happened in a moment. And so he had a high view. It is clearly distinguishable from Roman Catholicism. So he would be on board, as not all Lutherans would be today in these, but when it comes to controversial doctrines like, remember, the Immaculate Conception, on board with that, but certainly wouldn't want to build doctrine around it or call it infallible, as the Catholic Church does in 1854. The Assumption into Heaven, he's a little more ambivalent about that. She's there, but how he hesitates. And that would draw his ire, but thankfully, that doctrine has, people have threatened to proclaim it, but it has not been proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Church, which is good for Lutheran-Catholic relations. And I'll just remind you again, there is our scholar from which I drew some of this material, Beth Kreitzer, and she has a wonderful summary that I want to bring to your mind again. He maintained a warm, if transformed, devotion to Mary, recenters it on the gospel. His understanding of her role as the mother of God, and for most of the saints, was dramatically different from the late medieval. And that shift had the long-term effect of reducing. So these are just some reminders from last time. Now we looked at, we didn't look at this one, but here is a Lucas chronic image of Mary as an exemplar for child rearing. So they empty the monasteries in Lutheran lands. And you know the Katarina von Bora story where she's too sharp and smart. No one wants to marry her, so Luther gets her. <laughs> oh, I'll take that one, right? And there's this wonderful repartee and exchange, and we'll look at their marriage in a, in a more intimate way in a moment. But now Mary, she's, remember, both virgin and mother. And so she can be an exemplar for a woman around the home, and that is a dignified vocation. And so you have this, kids are getting in the way. For the reformers, children were often understood as an exemplar of the Reformation understanding of the gospel. Because when the children were brought to Jesus, what did the disciples do? Yeah. And they said, that's what the papacy and the, and, the, and the ecclesiastical establishment are doing to us. We're little children, and they're saying, get out of the way. We're going to mediate this for you. And Jesus wants to hold us directly. So that was one of their beautiful parables. So you'll see that over and over again, represented. And Lucas Chronic gives us one of these early ones. We're all to be children. We're all to be children. So again, we looked at some of these examples. We looked at some of the beautiful churches that have images in them. I, kinda, I had just responded to a Catholic friend at Wheaton. He came and visited. And I showed him this 
glitzy, beautiful altarpiece. And I said, look at that Catholic stuff. I'm so glad we got away from that as Protestants. And then I pulled the rug out from under him and I said, it's a Lutheran altarpiece, a beautiful Lutheran altarpiece. We, that is Protestants, have these altarpieces too. And I didn't show you this one, did I? This one's fascinating. It's going to take a little bit of looking. This is an art historical mystery that we have solved. And so what you've got is St. Francis, and Luther's really going to get upset about the St. Francis depictions, how he becomes another Christ, and therefore you go to him and not Jesus. And then we've got St. George killing the dragon, which reminds us of those law gospel panels where Jesus is killing the dragon. And then you've got Mary and Jesus. Now, if you're a Lutheran, and this is in your church, are you gonna, how, many would, how many would remove it? How many would keep it? Eh, it's kind of hard, right? This is the hard work of, 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 of uh, church running. Like, what are we going to do? So here's what they decided to do. They decided to keep it, but modify it. And this is, again, you have to be, these art historians have done this hard work. They found a description of this painting that has things that aren't on it anymore because the Lutheran modifications were slowly eroded over time. So I'm going to add them with PowerPoint, okay? <laughs> so what they did is they took Jesus' Jesus's beaming blood and giving St. Francis the stigmata. And so Francis is looking at Jesus and his hands are being wounded the same way Jesus's are. And the Lutherans are like, well, okay, fine. But what, what we want to do is they add the scales of justice being held by one of the figures, we're not sure who, this is all in, in recorded text, and they made the blood go from Jesus' side into the scales so that, so that Jesus is how you are judged, not your own merit. Is that not brilliant? And we were wondering, why does the description not match? Because hundreds of years since the Reformation, it faded. But they just, so isn't that a great way to modify these images? And that's the answer, isn't it? On what basis is our brother with the Lord? On his good life? Of course not. On what basis, God willing, will I ever be in, in, with the Lord? On the basis of my merits? Of course not. It's because that trickle of blood throws off the scales. Wow. It's amazing. And so, this is, and so I, I think that's a fantastic choice. And so Mary and Jesus are still central you don't have to get rid of them, but just make sure that the piety isn't going to the saints, but going to, from Christ to us. I love Robert Jensen. He's a great Lutheran theologian, died not too long ago. This is the way he put it. You ready for this? This is a, this is a keeper of a line. He said, the saints are not our way to God, and Mary is not our way to God, but God is our way to them. Just like, come on, that's just good Lutheran thinking, right? We can talk about the communion of saints. We can talk about our, our I have a friend who died in 2015, this day. And I think about him often, 42 years old. And, and we're connected to them because of the merit of Jesus. So this is just beautiful. So Mary is the queen of the saints, the exemplar of the saints. And so there's this connection. Our brother is with her. Right? And we looked at Luther's pulpit and we saw, hey, 
if he hated the Virgin Mary, as some people will accuse Protestants of saying, then why is he preaching his last sermon with her right above him? And, of course, pointing to her son. So let's look at a few more of those images today. This one, another one that these wonderful art historians dug up for, for the 2017 500th anniversary. And you zoom in, and again, it, it's unrecognizable from a Catholic altarpiece. And yet, she represents the gospel. What makes this Lutheran is the good Lutheran Christ-centered sermon that you would hear. And I'm thinking of, of Father Nelson, uh, Pastor Nelson. Where is he now? He's at Holy Hill. What is this? This is a Marian pilgrimage site. You ever been there? You've got to go. It is an amazing site outside of Milwaukee, this huge mountain with a church on top. Well, he's praying. He's preparing himself. He's, he's, he's refreshing himself so that he can minister more to this congregation. And he's doing it at a Marian site, and that's okay, right? It's a major Catholic site, and that's, there's nothing odd about that from a traditional Lutheran perspective. This is a Lutheran altarpiece. And then another good one, um, and I, have, I realize some are listening on audio. I'm going to try to describe these more. Uh, this one, it says right above, we looked at this one briefly, honor Mary, but don't adore her. And this, this, one's, this one's gorgeous. Okay, I'm going to zoom in. Again, you look at this like, what? That's Lutheran? Yes! Now let's zoom in. <laughs> look at this. There's a little inscription, lest you get confused, or me. And it says, in German, so it's Mary being crowned by Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, so the Trinity, the sweetly blessed and sanctified Virgin Mary is a paragon of the church. She represents you and me. Who, through the power of the Holy Ghost, shall be crowned in heaven which eternal, with eternal glory by God the Father. Why? For His beloved Son's sake. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the perfect answer. You don't have to rip down the images. Instead, you recenter them on Jesus and on the gospel. Now, I want to get a little bit more in the weeds here. Let me get technical with you for a moment. Um, I get this from a book, um, Daphne Hampson, Christian Contradictions, The Structures of Lutheran and Catholic Thought. And uh, she's a hostile witness in a sense. What I mean by that, she's not a believer herself, but she wants to write a book about how so many people misunderstand Luther. She's like, even these brilliant Catholics, they don't get him. And she gets upset, and I really love this book. See Fitzsimmons Allison, The Rise of Moralism. He says, you want to find people that don't understand Luther? You just go right to Protestant churches. You go right to Anglican churches. Because our hearts are programmed not to know the gospel, but are programmed to know the law. And so... Daphne Hampson gives us a chart. I've modified it just a little bit. And she says that in the Protestant understanding, which we've already seen, well, let's start with the Catholic, okay? So, you are on the road to God. The God is represented by the theta in Greek, theos, okay? You're on the road to God. You get a little infusion of grace for the trip. You get some merit along the way, and you're making your way there. It's very easy to get. I do a little bit. The Lord gives me a little bit. Now, some, I mean, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to call this antichrist, um, as some Lutherans would, 
But I would say that this is, um, it's a calculation that makes sense to me. I'm on an incline, I gotta make the effort, okay? So all this to say, Daphne Hampson says that's the Catholic understanding, and she says this is the Lutheran understanding. Now the, the, the book par excellence to understand the Catholic is Dante, but she says the book par excellence to understand this Lutheran chart is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, because Bunyan, he falls again and again, and every time it's grace that gets him through. If you read that, that wonderful allegory of his dream, he falls again and again. In this understanding, there is no progress. I'll say it again. There is no progress. There's progress here, but there's no progress. Instead, you're under law. I'll read you what it says. Works law with what seems natural to the human. The human trying to make their way to God. You can't do it. I can't do it. That's law. We want to be able to do it, which is why it kills our souls. Oh my goodness. Speaking of kills our souls. There we go. <laughs> right? We want, I want God to reward me for the good Christian that I am. It's very frustrating. And so what we've got is this attempt to deprogram our desire to succeed and achieve. And so what happens when you repent, you don't make a little step toward God. Instead, you die to your efforts and you are transferred into the realm of faith. And this is the key. You enter into God. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. Magic, not, not magically, it's, it's much more powerful than magic. Silly magic, which is just a figment of our imaginations. Sacramentally, you are put into Jesus. You died with Christ. You were baptized, right? Believe in your baptism, not the feeling you have. That's why Wheaton College students need Luther. That's why, if I may be so bold, I guess I'm kind of going on the record if this is recorded, but I'm going to do it anyway. I remember when this was Wheaton Bible Church. And you know the treadmill of evangelical students like me trying to feel their salvation. This should happen, first of all, the beautiful beautification of the interior, what happened to this church since it was beaten Bible church, to every church that is drumming up anxiety about people's salvation. You trust in the sacraments, which are the way Christ is made visible to us. So this is what Hampson is saying. Not a Christian. She's saying nobody understands Luther. The Catholics try to put him into this and think he doesn't understand this. And she's like, are you thick? You don't get it. She says, for Luther, progress is nothing other than constantly beginning. That's the pilgrim's progress metaphor. He's not like achieving along the way. Each and every time, the obstacles he's fa he faces, worldly wise man, going to kill him. The giant despair, going to kill him. Every time, it's grace that gets him through. I think that's, that is beautiful. Now, ready for this? I'm going to zoom in on this. This is Lutheranism. You are in God already. You've been transferred there. Wasn't it, didn't it show up in the collect? Hid with Christ in God. So that, if that means theta, theos, God, just the Greek word for, for the first letter of that word, you are in God. And I want to give you a quote from a wonderful book on justification by Michael Horton, a Protestant theologian. He says, the reformers focus on union with Christ and see it as the source 
rather than the goal of final salvation. The source rather than the goal. So in the Catholic system, and thank goodness there are mystics who understand this intuitively, Catholic mystics who understand, I think they're basically closet Lutherans. I can point you to a lot of them. Because I think Luther's right about this. In this, you're on the way to this, aren't you? Will you get there? I don't know. Maybe. But here, you're already there. No manager, some of you probably work in business, you're wise enough not to give, imagine giving a lifetime paycheck to your employees and saying, all right, you're good. Um, show up to work if you want, but there's all the money you'll ever make in this company. They wouldn't come, but God's foolish enough to do that to us. God gives us the paycheck at the start. That's the Lutheran understanding. And it's so bizarre. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Why does God do this? Because of his reckless generosity. So that's a translation in written form of what we looked at last time. You see, this is a more beautiful way of doing it, but Daphne Hampson's like, let me show you. You and I live here, and in my bad days, I go back here, or my bad hours, or you know, not just days, I mean, it happens many times. And then this is where I'm supposed to live with that super soaker of blood jet streaming upon me. So that's where we've been. Um, questions about that? Does that make sense? Comments or, or clarifications? I think that that's some helpful stuff. And now I want to see some ways that Mary illustrates that. Questions or comments about the law gospel? Yes, sir. Is there still, um, so going back to the Hail Mary, is there still a potential problem with praying in Hail Mary, even if we're just seeing it as a petition, or not as a petition, but as a formal reading, because we're not given a promise in Scripture that, that She'll hear us. She'll be able to hear us. Yes. Oh, good word. Well, we have to hail Mary, pray for us in our heart. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I, I'm with you. That's why I would steer toward the Lutheran rosaries. Because you do petition Mary directly, which Luther, well, let's, we'll look at his, his, um, his commentary on the Magnificat. He's going to get into the, in the weeds a little bit. But I think you're right. Like, it would be like, hold on now. Do I, especially if you're praying that. Ten times, and then the Our Father once, right? That's the, the way it works. So um, it, that could be a distraction. Go ahead. Wouldn't the issue with that be that I'm asking her to do it, not that she can't do it for me. She, she can pray for me, but I can't really ask her to do that. Is that, is that a fair way to say that? That might, yeah. But at the same time, we do ask each other to pray for us, right? You could say, where's my faith? Why did I ask you to pray for me? When I could have gone right to Jesus, you know. So that would, be, that would be a traditional answer. So I guess what I'm saying is you would have to really set... This is why Lutheran rosaries were created. Instead of having you um, constantly wonder, is this centered toward the gospel? There are versions of them. One of them, uh, there's a really good uh, Swedish version. Now, I'll bring those next time. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go into some of these. Um, but th these are good questions. I am not, I am not, I'm saying look to the gospel, not so I'm so glad that came up. It was kind of a throwaway observation. We want to keep our eyes on this. Very important. Um, other clarifications or questions about this before we move on, see how it's illustrated in, in, in Mar with Mary? Let's, um, okay, this is fun. I, I enjoy this. This is, this is a way of further showing the, the drama of this. And these, okay, this image, 
We didn't look at this last time. We looked at the, okay, this is just too much fun. Okay, I'm going to zoom in on this. This is the way it was before Luther, okay? And so what this says at the bottom is Minerva expelling the vices from the Garden of Virtue. 1502, it's at the loop. So if you don't have the gospel, this is probably what your life looks like. You know, they would have, in, in the 1500s, they would have said the cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, and fortitude, are what you need. Now we would say perseverance and a go-get-it American attitude and, 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 and effective weight loss techniques. We've replaced the card <laughs> cardinal virtues. Nevertheless, um, all of those in some senses could... So we've got these virtues. So the, look, at, look at the form. This is you getting your act together. And those are the virtues that you're trying to attain. And you might not attain them. That's the problem. Okay. So what happens is, this in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, are some images on this tree, in this famous painting at the Louvre, that says nothing from Scripture. You will not find this in the Bible. Come, divine companions of the virtues who are returning to us from heaven. Expel these foul monsters of vices from our seats. That's not in the Bible. And Minerva is a pagan figure. She reminds me of Michael Jackson. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to make a change. Like We know how that worked out for Michael, sadly enough. right? This, this idea, I can fix myself. Or Tony Robbins. We can change our lives. We can do, be exactly, and have exactly what we wished. Right, what we wish. This is, this is the stuff that, that captivates people. In, in American, you can do it attitudes. And that's what's going on in this painting. Chastity, is, there's sloth. You, can know, you have to get up in the morning and work out. Eternal hatred, fraud, and malice. You can't gossip about anyone anymore. Sloth, ingratitude, and ignorance, and avarice, they're being sent out of your life. I'm getting out in front of it. I'm going to fix my life. Does this sound familiar? That's what it looked like in 1500. And right here, you have a little inscription in Latin that says the fourth of the cardinal virtues. Does anyone know what the fourth one is? We looked at justice, justice temperance, and fortitude. There's one more, the most important of all of them, prudence. Prudence is trapped in this wall and the painting is saying if you could just break down that wall and find prudence, everything would work out. But if you go up here, you get a sense that even these virtues themselves are about to get blown away by the wind of your life, by sin. I think Mantegna, this great painter, gives us a sense of the absolute hopelessness of you figuring it out or I figuring it out on my own. <laughs> and even the Catholics knew it. Gasparo Contarini, one of the Catholics who understood Luther, he said the ancient philosophers were fools in thinking that this purification could be brought about by acquiring the habitual practice of virtues. He said we must justify ourselves by the justice of another, namely Christ, Joining ourselves to him, his justice must become ours. That is as Lutheran of a statement as you can get, and it would become illegal in Rome to say that shortly.
And so this is preferable. This is vastly preferable to that. I think you can really get the sense of the merit accruing versus the law gospel understanding. Now, I've got a, a big reveal today. Okay, get ready for this. Big reveal. So I have evidence from, from the visual culture of this congregation that as beautiful as this is, and we're going we're gonna, to... Remember, remember when I said how Mary showed up in one of these? Right? So here's the law gospel, and I'm trying to say Mary is a part of the law gospel Lutheran tradition. And the big reveal is this. I found a place, at least indirectly, where your congregation inadvertently erased it. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me explain. Does anyone know Marilyn? Now, she is a member here, correct? Okay. So Marilyn, a couple years ago, she heard I was coming to this church, and she said, I've got a calendar for you. I want to give you a law gospel calendar. And I was thrilled. Yeah, I know. Don't, don't we all end up flying off the shelves? Everyone needs a law gospel calendar. So, so I got my law gospel calendar from, from Marilyn, and I was excited about this. She heard I was talking about Chronic and Luther. And let me just zoom in again. So here's Mary, who for Chronic was an essential part of the gospel panel, of the, law, the gospel part of the law gospel panel. Now, Look what happens. It's really good, right? The Holy Spirit does not allow them to harm us, for, uh, for we are in the Christian church where there is nothing but the continuous, uninterrupted forgiveness of sins. Great message. In I don't know whether it's October, November, what this is. But look! <laughs> totally gone. She was airbrushed out. Now, not by you, but by whoever put that law gospel calendar together. So we got a smoking gun. Um, so I got it from Maryland in 2019, but as I was looking over my slides, I was like, whoa, I've got evidence for the disappearance of the Virgin Mary and Lutheran <laughs> calendar. So, so, all right, so, so here's the question. Pardon me? Yeah, no, no, that's right. Maybe she went up into glory. Fair enough. Fair point. You've saved the calendar. You've saved the calendar. Okay, well done. Well done. Okay, so, so here's the, the assumption. He did believe in the assumption. Okay, so... So here's that you've you've saved you've saved Lutheranism. This is very good. So here's the question I want to ask. You know, calendar aside, she does kind of disappear from Lutheran traditions, and the question is why. And the answer I'll give to that question is what I'll just call Lutheran drift. Okay, well, just Lutheran drift. What do I mean by Lutheran drift? I'll give you a couple of quotes from some scholars. Why does Mary disappear? in Lutheran traditions? Why is she no longer a part of this great gospel tradition that Luther recovered? The Pauline tradition. Okay. According to Darmay McCullough, interesting church historian, adherence to traditional doctrines like Mary's perpetual virginity in the 1920s marked out the mainstream reformers from more radical groups like the Mennonites, like the Anabaptists. The reason Lutherans believed in Mary was because it distinguished them from the radical reformers. And that delights me. Um, it, I, I, this is why I could never be a radical reformer. <laughs> I'm, I have Mennonite friends and I'm grateful for them, but I could never do that. Because they don't have Mary. And, and, and that's why Luther holds on to it. So that's the 1520s. What happens is 
Lutherans start to distinguish themselves from another aggressive culture. Later preachers are much more willing to criticize Mary and to suggest that she erred or even sinned. And Kreitzer says, why would they do that? Because of Tridentine aggression. And that is a simple adjectival form of the Council of Trent, where the Catholic Church tried to reform itself, and I think it's fair to say, misunderstood Lutheran theology and critiqued a misunderstanding. And when they started to amp up their Mariology, the Lutherans were like, we're not them. And it's understandable. And then finally, um, the activities of the Jesuits main, uh, 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 maintaining the proper anti-Roman stance took priority over addressing Mary's special position. When you're faced with Jesuits that are trying to convert Lutherans back to Catholicism, you're no longer going to be defending these Marian doctrines. You want to say, all right, you can have her. <laughs> She's yours. That's what happens. And when I remember this slide, right, what I'm saying is we don't have to react anymore. We don't have to react. We can go back to what Luther said, and I think it's recoverable. I hope it's recoverable, because I, f I find it, I find it um, powerful. Let's look at what he said. Some of you asked, uh, wanted to get, we want to get into it. This is where we go into depth. Okay. What's the progress of Luther? In 1513 to 16, he lectures on the Psalms and says Mary and the saints can detract from faith in Christ's power. Exactly the critique of, of the dangers, risks of the rosary. In 1519, he says, though at the hour of death, Christians should invoke all the holy angels and especially his angel, and the, that is your own guardian angel, and the mother of God. So fascinating, right? Not the straightforward decline of Mary that you would think. He actually says, don't go too far and hold on to her. In 1521, this is where the gold is. The commentary on the Magnificat. We ought to call upon her. Whoa! <laughs> that for her sake, God may grant and do what we, uh, do what we request. That for her sake, God... When, did I, I must, I may better make sure I got that right. I, I'm, I'm furiously writing this as I'm, but um, we ought to call upon her that for her sake, God may grant and do what we request. Amazing. He has this understanding that we can call upon her in, because she's part of the mystery of the church. Kind of, kind of beautiful, we might say. Let's go into this sermon a little bit more. The Mag Mag Magnificat, com not a sermon, Magnificat commentary. The Magnificat, of course, is from the Gospel of Luke. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and the meek. We, of course, sang it last time. You will sing it shortly. You know it well. We should say, O blessed Virgin, Mother of God, you were nothing and all despised. Yet God in His grace regarded you and worked such great things in you you were worthy of none of them, but the rich and abundant grace of God was upon you, far above any merit of yours. Hail to you. Hail Mary. And here's the brilliance of this. You read that closely. Who's that also describing? Jesus. Us. 
us. Yeah, I think. Right? It's describing you and me. It's an exact portrait of our relation to God. Right? We are nothing and despised, but God in His grace regarded us and worked great things in us. We're worthy of them? No. <laughs> but the rich and abundant grace of God was upon you, upon us. Right? It's that law gospel understanding. So that's what makes Lutheran Mariology so rich. Okay? Another example. All honor, all blessedness, and her unique place in the whole of mankind, among which she has no equal. Namely, that she had a child by the Father in heaven. No one can say anything greater of her or to her. She is to be honored because she exemplifies that gospel mystery. Not to be honored for her own sake, but because she exemplifies the mystery. And one more bit from this. This is later in his life. Now, things are getting rough. We've moved the ball down the field and it's not good. And so in the small cold articles of 1537, he says devotion to Mary as an intercessor was dangerous and distracting. It is neither commanded nor recommended and has no precedent in Scripture. An excessive devotion through festivals, prayers, churches, images, and altars is sheer idolatry. Such honor belongs to God alone. Why does he go back and forth? That's not the end. He's going to say more. But my guess is that he's reacting to different situations, right? So maybe the question is, um, to what extent can I bring Mary? It's like, well, are you in a position of Christian maturity where you can make those steps, right? Or is there going to be a temptation to idolatry? Then avoid them. Luther is a nimble pastor. He knows how to, to switch here and there. To try to find a consistent position is difficult because he's a pastor changing his position pastorally, not theologically changing it, but ministering in different situations. Here's another example. Remember this? Mary interceding, and there's, remember Jesus was up here. He blames Bernard of Clairvaux for misleading people with the notion that Mary simply bears her breast to Christ, who then cannot refuse her request. That's what he's concerned about. If you understand the gospel clearly, Mary's not a problem. But if you are going to her as an alternative to the gospel, that's what he seems to really be frustrated by. Okay, a couple more things, and then, and then we'll, we'll unpack a little bit. Um, this, I think, is truly insightful. 1532, a sermon on the Annunciation. He says, the Vulgate, now this is the direct answer. The Vulgate translates Ave Maria, gratia plena, Hail Mary, full of grace, as if she is a queen doing, doling out treasures from a chest. A better translation was Holdselige, or Bengnatete, uh, gracious one or blessed one, one to whom God is gracious. Really interesting. And then... It's better for the Ave Maria to be entirely laid aside than to be used in a, an appropriate or disrespectful manner. That, I think, would be Luther, Luther's answer to the rosary, right? It's better to lay it aside if it's distracting you from the truth of the gospel. But if it's not, I don't know. So much is on the table as we think about this. I wanna, I'll, Paul, I've got a couple, some images that I really want to share with you tonight but I, um, that I think you'll find encouraging. But go ahead. 
Yeah. Um, I seem to recall that around the Reformation, it's actually changed uh, by the Roman Church to quote unquote make it a complete prayer by adding uh, the pray for us in the hour of need. That might have been earlier. Uh, do you know anything? I don't. I don't know the exact answer to that question. It wouldn't surprise me though. The question is to whether or not there was a change to make it a more full invocation. That wouldn't, because if, if they did change it in reaction to Protestantism, that would fit the pattern. They're going to go higher and higher. Like, you're going to turn down the heat, we're going to turn it up to 11. Let me see if I can find Yeah, yeah please, please let us know. And so, other thoughts or questions about this? Go ahead. So, sir, with this Mary. When the Lord says, tells me, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Yes. And you listen to the prophets and the law to not do what it was done. For an example, for me, how to live. In that, could I, when I'm honoring the other prophets, Matthew, John, Mark, John, I'm reading their word and what they're telling me, what Christ told them to tell me. Yes. I am in Christ is giving me this word. Yes. To honor these men and this word is giving me. Would that be the way I should look at Mary? Yes. She's your elder sister. I can see Lord thank you yes. for her because without her, where would I be at? Preach this? it. Because Christ wouldn't have come into the world because he chose to come through a vessel who was this particular woman. Yes, you're, I think that's it. That's a Lutheran understanding. And you, and you mentioned the prophets. She speaks with the tone of the prophets in the Magnificat. Yes, exactly. I think that. Yes, sir. Okay, so it was before. It's only really added, it's added to the catechism. Okay. It becomes universal, and I, I would be shocked if the Reformation didn't have something to do with that. That makes sense. And, and it is interesting that he dove, does have his moments, doesn't he, where you can call upon her. He seems to prevaricate to a certain extent. Maybe we could say, and, so, and the Catholic Church is going to double down on that, and maybe we would simply say with, with Lutherans, it's Christian freedom. It's an issue of Christian freedom. But here's, let me, let me, it's also an issue of Christian depth. Let me explain. There has been an enormous output of recent work that I, I don't, I'm not telling you so you go, you can read it if you want, um, but I'm, I'm going to summarize it for you. That people saying Luther was a mystic. Luther, because of this in Christ, and when I say mystic, I'm talking about an immediate conscious sense of the presence of God. And for a long time, the Catholic Church said, that's our terrain. And now all these scholars are coming along and saying, actually, not only Luther, but many Lutherans have this rich mystical understanding. And here's why it doesn't surprise me. One of the first saints, oh no, I, I, I just called her a saint, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, one of the first heretics that was burned at the stake, Margaret Porret, was burned for saying stuff like this, the soul is saved by faith without works. <laughs> Sounds kind of Lutheran, doesn't it? <laughs> right? 
And so one of the dimensions of Lutheran Mary understanding that I want to mention before we go on is this amazing claim. Mary revealed her, the German word is gelassenheit, surrender, a great mystical word, surrender. Her resignation or self-surrender to God as well as her even mind or equanimity in giving thanks to God no matter her condition. This praise of Mary reveals Luther's deep indebtedness to medieval mystical theology, for Mary is the ideal mystic. Now here's the kicker. Kreitzer says that we are now discerning that, that Luther had this rich understanding. And when you and I hear the word mystic, I hope your theological instincts are like, whoa, are we going to go off the rails here? Is it going to be some New Age bookstore kind of deal? Luther says that if you anchor your mysticism in, uh, with Mary as the exemplar, you avoid the problematic parts of mysticism because it's always grounded in the gospel. And so Mary all of a sudden emerges in these new scholars who have looked at the Lutheran tradition. She's not just on those altars for decoration. She's on those altars because she symbolized the, symbolizes the fact that Christ needs to be born in all of us. This is a Pauline understanding. I am like a woman in childbirth, he says in Galatians, groaning because Christ is not yet formed in you. Isn't that powerful? So in other words, we're all supposed to be like Mary. Now this is, okay, now, now let me illustrate this for you. And I'll, I'll admit, this is, this is tear-jerking. Um, this is quite powerful. Um, and, I, and I offer it to you for, for your encouragement. So here it is. This is the Wittenberg altarpiece of 1547. You have all seen it before, I hope. You've got baptism on this side. You've got the Lord's Supper in the middle. You've got the forgiveness issued, not by a priest, but by a brother to a brother, the mayor of the town. And then on the back, you have all that wonderful law gospel stuff. There's Jesus conquering sin. There's the flood, which represents sin. There's the sacrifice of Isaac. There's the brazen serpent. But I want to zoom down here. And you've seen this image, I'm sure. It's really wonderful. It's an image of Luther preaching and Christ is made manifest. That's what a good sermon should do. It should bring Christ into the world. So, as the congregation hears, Jesus is made real by the preaching of the Word, the sacrament of preaching. I showed this image to a student once, and she replicated it at her church. She got her, pa her Lutheran church, she got her pastor and all the kids, and that's just awesome. Like, that's the great thing about Wheaton College. They get students like that who, I mean, it's like, come on, make Jesus real in the sermon. Now, I want to zoom in. I'm going to zoom in here. There's Cronach. He was elderly at the end of his life, arthritis. And I want to ask you a question. Why is she looking at us and the others are not? Why is she looking at us and the others are not? That the Lutheran way to display to us 
what's coming from them to us, something like that? Well, exactly. The communion of saints. This is Magdalena Luther. This is a, a, an image of when Luther saw his 13-year-old daughter die. She died in his arms. And this is a portrait that Cranach made of Magdalena. So he lost a daughter at 13, he and Katarina. And if you've ever read the account of this harrowing loss, my little Magdalena, he said to her, my little girl, soon you will not be with me. Will you be happy without your father? And the tired child tenderly and softly answered, Yes, dear father, as God wants. And soon we put her in the coffin. I get this from um, Hendrix's book on Luther's life. It's an authorized source. What I'm saying is, is that Magdalena Luther, she is looking out at us because she was painted because she's with God. She's with God just as as our brother is. And he looks out at us, right? (laughs) The rest of us are still, we got to hear the gospel. She's experiencing it. One of the most beautiful things about this story is that Luther obviously had an incredibly difficult time with this situation. I and my wife should joyfully, should joyfully give thanks for such a felicitous departure of Magdalena and a blessed end by which she escaped the power of the flesh, the world, the Turk, and the devil. But the force of our natural love is so great that we're unable to do this without crying and grieving in our hearts or even without experiencing death ourselves. You're going to have to give thanks for me. I'm too wounded by my daughter's death. You're going to have to believe for me. That's the church. You're going to have to believe for me. Now, what's beautiful about it is that Magdalena... That's about as old as Mary would have been. She would have been 13 to 16 years old, biblical scholars say, when she gave birth to the Christ child. And Mary revealed her surrender, her resignation, as well as her even mind or equanimity in giving thanks to God no matter her condition. It's a description of his own daughter's death. Lutheran surrender Mariology immediately is, is, is applicable to all of our lives. It's immediately applicable because you and I all have to surrender to, right? To the sufferings God places in front of us, Lord, I surrender. I have a friend, he was provost at Wheaton College, Dan Jones, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He has struggled the last 10 years profoundly. And he told me, he said, Matt, I learned something. God has given this to me and I want him to take it away. But when I finally surrendered, when I finally just allowed God to allow me to experience this disease, an amazing amount of the suffering was relieved. It didn't, the suffering didn't go away, but the resistance left. And I think that's what he's getting at. I think Luther's Mary is the heart of the gospel and it's for all of us. So that's why I don't think she should disappear. We've got three minutes before we, we go till 7.40. Is that correct? Oh, we got a little time. Okay. 
Good, good. Um, good, because I'm a little behind. Uh, so that's powerful stuff, though, isn't it? I mean, that story. I just, I, I, cannot, I cannot believe how beautiful this, this congregational life illustrated right there in Wittenberg. What would it look like if we were to see this, this understanding of the gospel laid out in a Marian way? Okay, this is a little, this is a little zany. Okay, we've got an Orthodox icon. We've got Moses taking off his shoes. What's happening here? We know. Yeah. There's the water from the rock. This is the 16th century Orthodox icon. He makes his ascent. He receives the Ten Commandments. And then he's got to go back down. And there's the golden calf. And there's John of Damascus singing a praise to the Virgin Mary. And who's, what's going on here? What's going on? Why is she surrounded with red? Huh. Exodus chapter 3. She's the burning bush. Because the bush burned, but it was not consumed. And she gave birth to the Christ child, but she was still virginal. God said, I am, and Jesus said, I am as well. I mean, that's a gospel-centered understanding of Exodus 3. It's completely normative in the Christian tradition to read Exodus 3 in that way. Now, here's my little trick up my sleeve here. <laughs> right? You want to go encounter God through law? It's not going to work. I've taken the law-gospel panel and I've put law on this side and gospel on this side. Don't live your life in law. Descend into the fulfillment of the law in Christ. Now, that's kind of a parlor trick, I admit. But I'm starting to look at these other icons and reading them in a Lutheran way. One more example. 1489, this is a missal. This is the kind of art that would have inspired Lucas Cronach in the Law Gospel panel. And it tells us that he didn't invent it. You've got... Death on this side with a skull and Eve dispensing the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and a dazed Adam has no idea what's happening and Satan. And then on this side you have Mary. There, look at all that. And it looks exactly like the law gospel panel. Death and the devil have us under control. And what breaks us out of that? The divine grace joined with Mary's unworthiness. O oh, thou blessed virgin, said Luther. Mary represents the church and she's dispensing the Eucharist from the tree and there's the cross above it. It's exactly like the law gospel panel. The cross and the Last Supper are the alpha and the omega of Lutheran theology, says Bonnie Noble. Isn't that? So I think I'm starting to see it everywhere. I'm starting to realize that the Lutheran grammar of the gospel, we'll do one more. Here's a classic Orthodox church. This is Hagia Sophia. If you've got Jesus on one side, John the Baptist on the other, and Mary on the other. Well, every Orthodox church has this. Jesus here, Mary here, John the Baptist here. And I'm starting to look at these and saying, you know what? I see the law gospel all over again. Right? Do I want to approach God through law? Didn't work well for John the Baptist, and it's not going to work well for me. But I'm going to go through the gospel, and that's how I access Jesus. She represents that. So I'm seeing this, and one last one I'll share with you, and that we can kind of, we'll have time to unpack these and discuss these next time. This one's kind of cool, okay? So, 
What's this scene? Obviously, it's the adoration of the Magi. Now, how are we going to make this very Lutheran? Oh, there's a way. Because look what the king is bringing. He's got a lot to offer, doesn't he? A lot of merit, we might say. <laughs> to dish out to Jesus. He's brought quite a gift. Now, the Calvinist response was to rip these, these paintings down, and I think that's a problem, and Luther did too. But something has happened here, hasn't there? Yes! Empty-handed! Robert Farrar Capon, we can respond to gifts as a live hand and try to clutch it, or we can respond as a dead hand, in which case we will be perpetually open to all goods. That's Luther. You've died with Christ. You just received the gift of grace with an open hand. Do you have anything to offer? I'm already one in Christ. I have been given everything. Anything I have to offer will just flow from Him. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I mean, it's just so I'm starting to, maybe, maybe I've just been completely seduced by the Lutheran gospel, but, but I'm starting to see this everywhere. And I look at Peter Paul Rubens and everyone bringing their treasures, and I'm like, no, give me the empty-handed magi that comes seeking to receive the gift of grace. Here's Pardon me? Here's though Jesus has a wound in his side. Oh, yeah, it's, I think it's a big fat belly button, but maybe it's a foreshadowing of the wound. I like that. I like that interpretation. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Oh, I might have to uh, uh, steal that observation from you. That's pretty clever. Yeah, exactly. It almost feels like he's going to, he, oh, and he, he looks, he's almost blessing us. Incredibly intelligent. Were images like this informed by Lutheran theology? There's a very strong case to be made that yes, they were. So I hope that we're starting to move toward a Mary that radiates with the freedom of the gospel of forgiveness of sins. That's not something we, we need in order to have her on our side so that Jesus will one day accept us. But we already know he's on our side. And we have a mother, a sister along the way who is in the exact same position. She received the gospel as well. We have the freedom to say that in the Protestant church, and I think the whole church needs to hear it. We have come to 745. I wish I could join you for prayer. I gotta run off to my vestry meeting, but I'm getting pretty excited about Luther. Maybe I'll start coming here. No, I won't do that. I won't start coming here. I won't start coming here. But this has been a delight. Thank you for your feedback. We're gonna meet one last time, and I'll bring these images up again. We can have some time to discuss them, percolate, think about the Virgin Mary. You know, and, um, and we'll have some discussion, and I'm going to talk about the, the old 350 years ago Jesuit missions and maybe some ways we can think about that in a Lutheran way next time. Sound good? Thanks, thanks guys.